This morning, we wrap up the series on the letters in Revelation. Now, we're in the season of Lent, and it feels appropriate for us to allow this season to focus our attention even more closely on Jesus. My goal this morning, or at least in my mind, is to bring about closure to the letters of Revelation at the same time, give us eyes to see Jesus uniquely in this season. Now, we started this series in Revelation with this statement. So this entire book, this entire testimony, this entire prophecy is centered on Jesus. It's centered on the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and what it looks like for the people of Jesus to walk in the way of Jesus. Today, we end the series with a reminder of the person of Jesus and why he is worthy of our worship. Now, I think this is important because we have a tendency to make the book of Revelation to be about everything but Jesus. We make it about prophecy, the end of all things, Jesus conquering all of his enemies, and so much more. And yet the letter clearly tells us at the very start in Revelation 1.1 that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, my goal this morning is to remind us of the Easter Jesus we serve, to remind us of the King we follow and worship during this Lenten season. And I want to use Revelation as the focal point of that reminder. Now, what you notice about Jesus at the beginning of Revelation, in Revelation 1, 4 through 8, this is what is said. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, in this text, there is some very powerful imagery. Jesus is described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the one described as him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Him who was, who is, and who is to come, the almighty. This is the picture at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And here is our picture at the end of Revelation. In Revelation 22, 1 through 5, this is stated. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, 
and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, this is the picture of the victorious Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the reigning king, seated on his throne, that he will reign and rule forever and ever and ever. And I think we can all acknowledge that we live in the space between the first part of Revelation and the projected future. This vision that John casts at the end of the letter has not yet become our reality. And what I'm concerned with and the idea I want to speak into this morning is our vision of how this reality comes to pass. So in order to help us to understand this, I think it would be helpful to remind us of the pivotal moments in the life of Jesus and his ministry to figure out the ways in which God seems to carry out his victory. So I want you to think for a moment about what images come to mind when you think of the coronation of a king or a presidential inauguration. You likely think of things like pomp and circumstance. You think of power, pride, wealth. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the arrival of our king. How did Jesus show up and introduce himself to the world? The texts tell us, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Philippians 2, 5 to 7. And then in Luke 2, we see that she, being Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see this juxtaposition between pomp and circumstance and pride and power and wealth and a king, our king, who introduces himself in humility and wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the images that come to mind when you think of a military parade, a show of force. You think of power, might. You think of war. You think of everyone in lockstep and pageantry. You think of it as this bravado, this description or the display of strength and power and might. Now, I want you to think for a moment about Jesus arriving as the Messiah on Palm Sunday. In that moment, he's hailed by his followers as king, but Jesus rode a peace donkey. As a contrast, his, with his peaceable kingdom, with the violent empires of the pagan world. See, his ge- gesture was to flip the script, to show the power of the kingdom through humility. In John 12, we read, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The difference is stark. Think one more time of the images that come to mind when you think of someone conquering their enemies or winning a battle. Even if you think about the news of war right now, what images come to mind when you think of that? You think of death and carnage. You think of victory songs. You think of chants of the hero. You think of devastation, ruin, weeping. Now, describe for me what images come to your mind when you think of Jesus winning victory over sin and death. We'll let the text describe this. 
In Matthew 27, it says this, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And Philippians 2 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I guess the question comes to my mind when I think of the difference between the way Jesus enters the world, the way Jesus declares his kingship, the way Jesus overcomes his enemies. And the question is this, why is it on the American psyche that Jesus will come back at the end and kill everyone and claim victory? Why is it often within the church's belief system that Jesus will come back at the end and kill everyone and claim victory? Because you realize we have always and often kept getting this wrong. See, with Jesus' birth, we make this statement, the text tells us, that he can't be king. He was born out of wedlock. He was born into poverty. He can't be a king. He comes from Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? During his life, over and over, people say he can't be the Messiah. The Messiah overthrows enemies. The Messiah would rebel against the empire. Even the disciples misunderstood. Judas turned him over to start the revolution. They wanted him to ride into Jerusalem on power, and he chose to ride in on a donkey. Even in death, he was mocked as king of the Jews, and they killed him. See, we have always been misunderstanding. And my assumption is that the reason we misunderstand is that we're always looking for our King Saul, the tall, the powerful, the one who vanquishes our enemies. We are all about heroic leadership, and we worship our heroes. We imagine leaders to be charismatic and powerful and influential figures who can steer organizations by the sheer force of their personality. We worship leaders who put others in their place, who rule through fear and might and speak down to the other guy. I mean, tell me that this does not sound like what we're always clamoring for in society. And I even think it's true in the church. We promote leaders who then feel compelled to act as a hero. They develop an inflated sense of self, an inflated sense of their own importance. They often adopt an authoritarian leadership style. I mean, if you just listened to a recent podcast by Christianity Today recounting the downfall of a church in Seattle, you see the outcome of heroic leadership. 
we watch in the news repeatedly train wreck after train wreck of other personality-driven ministries. See, the church has failed to understand the way of Jesus and kingdom leadership and has sought to live into hero worship. But tell me this is not also how we promote our CEOs. Tell me this is not how we elect our officials. Tell me people have not placed their hope in a certain official to be elected. If only we could make society better. If only we could usher in the right values for our nation. It's as if we think that the kingdom of God relies on the governance of a particular party or a specific president. We have misplaced our hope. If you have ever felt that the only way to get back to the right and best version of America is to have a particular party in office or to to support a particular set of values, there's a good chance you've placed your hope on this empire and not on the coming kingdom. If you think that the next best step in the church, any church, is to simply replace one set of personality-driven, hero-focused leaders with a more progressive or more woke version of a personality-driven, hero-focused leader, then again, we've completely misunderstood the way of Jesus. So that should lead us to ask the question, why are we so quick to misunderstand? What have we gotten wrong? And my suggestion would be Revelation 19. See, it makes complete sense to worship a heroic leader who crushes his or her enemies if the Jesus we worship does the same. It makes complete sense to bully people online, to maintain a domineering presence, to shame others, to destroy the competition, to slander our foes, to lead personality-driven ministries, to practice authoritarian leadership. And that all makes complete sense if the nonviolent Jesus of the Gospels somehow mutates into this hyperviolent, overcome and destroy our enemies, Jesus, in Revelation. See, there is this prominent belief within the church that the divine violence of the Old Testament gets to see its return, that the trajectory away from violence and toward loving our enemies that culminates in Jesus de- describing peace and nonviolence will ultimately be renounced by Jesus And he will choose the most horrific portrayal of divine violence in all of the Bible. See, when we literalize the military images of Revelation, we can arrive at the conclusion that sees Jesus give up peace and love in exchange for the tired way of war and violence. This reading of Revelation has many implications and has been used to silence the Sermon on the Mount, and instead promote a belief that I believe is counter to the kingdom and the way of the king. So I want us for a few moments to look at Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. I'll read the text, and then we'll take a few moments to work our way through it. The text says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in his presence, who had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, that's pretty rough to hear. And in full honesty, it sounds like what God is doing is having Jesus come back and just destroy. See, this passage has been frequently used as proof of a clear example that Jesus engages in literal violence. But here, John is utilizing traditional warfare imagery to imaginatively express this final battle between right and wrong. But in his usual subversive way, he completely transforms the imagery. See, in reality, this passage does not depict a single violent act. Now, you may go, that's not true. Give me a moment. A couple things to note. In Revelation 19, it begins in a very interesting way. See, point number one, victory has already been attained. Revelation 19 starts not with an army preparing for battle, but with an army celebrating God's victory in battle that has already been fought and then partaking in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the first thing you say in Revelation 19. Hooray, hallelujah, victory has been accomplished. Let's sit down and feast together. And then verse 11 is this. Second, Jesus is on a white horse. The one called the word of God is not riding the red horse of war, but the white horse of triumph. Eugene Peterson says this, the perennial ruse is to glorify war so that we accept it as a proper means of achieving goals. But it is evil. It is opposed by Christ. Christ does not sit on the red horse ever. Jesus is on the white horse. Third, Jesus doesn't overcome evil by war, but by his word. See, John continues to use traditional apocalyptic symbolism to to depict Christ using a sharp sword to strike down the nations. 
However, John tells us that the sword the writer uses to smite the nations is not in his hand, but in his mouth. It's extremely important to notice that this is not a warrior's sword, but the word of God. His weapon clearly is nothing other than the truth he speaks, which is why the title he rides into battle with is faithful and true and why his name is called the word of God. Fourth, Jesus has blood-stained robes prior to the battle. So Jesus doesn't wage war like the murderous beast of Rome. Jesus wages war as the slaughtered lamb of God. Boyd says this, By contrast, Jesus' robes were blood-stained before he goes into battle, and the stains are from his own spilled blood as well as the blood of his martyred servants. It represents once again that Christ and his followers win by having their own blood shed rather than by shedding the blood of others. Zond echoes this point when he suggests that John stresses that Jesus reigns through self-sacrifice by depicting the white horse rider as wearing a robe drenched in blood before the battle begins. Jesus' robe is soaked in his own blood. Jesus doesn't shed the blood of enemies. Jesus sheds his own blood. This is the gospel. The rider on the white horse is the slaughtered lamb, not the slaughtering beast. See, if we look at all of John's creative symbols, the message is clear. Jesus wages war by self-sacrifice and by his words. This is the way of the Lamb, and this is the most consistent with the way of Jesus. See, the followers of the Lamb are called to participate in a war and to share in the victory of the Lamb, and we're called to do that the way the Lamb himself did, namely by choosing to love our enemies and suffer at their hands rather than to take up arms against them. Boyd goes on to say this, John's revelation or revision of traditional warfare imagery with its stunning assessment of power, is so contrary to normal human practice that most churches throughout history have not agreed with John. I suspect that this is at least part of the reason why the genius of John's transformation of violent imagery and the beauty of his nonviolent, self-sacrificial message have so rarely been grasped throughout history. To this day, it seems the majority of Christians are more comfortable with a militant Messiah who slays our enemies than they are with a loving Messiah who would rather die out of love for his enemies and who calls us to do the same. See, perhaps John is asking too much of us as modern readers by assuming we'll keep in mind that Jesus is ever and always the slaughtered lamb. This is not a literal war. This is a symbolic war. This is not a future war. It is a present war. The kingdom of God draws near to earth and humanity seems to misunderstand. His way of life conquers men and women, not through war and might. He chooses a more subtle way. He dies. He wages revolution by persuasion and by sitting for meals with enemies. He doesn't whip up a riotous mob into frenzy. Rather, he chats with friends on a dusty road out of town. 
He does not strike fear, but he uses his favorite phrase after victory, peace be with you, because shalom belongs to the king and his kingdom. Zahn goes further to say, John the Revelator is showing us how Jesus saves the world, not how Jesus kills the world. The book of Revelation is not where the, gospel, the good news of the gospel goes to die. The book of Revelation is where the good news of the gospel finds its most creative expression. May we be the type of people who usher in that kingdom. Amen.